Yeah. Wow. What an amazing night so far, right? I mean, so powerful hearing the stories of life change and what God is doing in people's hearts and people's lives. And I'm here to tell you that if you're here tonight and God's not doing something unbelievable in your heart and your life, let me tell you something. Listen up tonight because I believe he wants to. You know, I think of Chandler's story when she was up here talking and or when they were sharing her story, comes last week for the first time, and God just begins to work something in her heart while she's here. We didn't do any response afterwards. We didn't really talk about anything other than our vision and what we want to see happen, and we walked through some scripture with that, but God just kept impressing it on her heart, and so she gets home last week, and God's just dealing with her. And so in her car, she begins to pray. She says, I didn't know the words to pray. I didn't know what to say, but I just began to pray. And I asked God to forgive me of my sins, and I surrendered my life to him. And I'm here to tell you, man, God wants to meet you where you're at tonight. We're beginning this series tonight called Faith Works. I love the name Faith Works because it kind of has a dual meaning. One, that faith works so that when we pray, so that when we do something, that faith works, that our faith in God works because God can do anything. God is bigger than any problem we deal with. God is bigger than any situation that we deal with, so faith works. But also faith works because later on in James, as we get to it, and you're going to see us talking about it, that the Bible tells us in James 2.26, which is kind of the theme verse, that faith without works is dead. In other words, if you claim to have faith in Jesus, if you claim to say that you're a Christian but your, your life doesn't lie up with the claims of your mouth, then, then you're not. In fact, First John would say it this way, that if you claim to be in him yet continue on sinning, then the truth is not in you and you're a liar. See, here's the reality. The reality of the fact is, is that it is impossible for you to surrender your life to Jesus. It is impossible for God to be changing your life. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. It is impossible for that to be happening if your life doesn't line up with that. So then, when I talk to people all the time, one of the greatest stumbling blocks that they have to coming to faith in Jesus is the simple fact that they see all these people who claim to be Christians and are not acting like Christians. So the reason Gandhi says, I love their Christ, but I don't like their Christians because their Christians look nothing like their Christ. It's kind of an interesting perspective. So there's so many people that are around going, I don't follow Jesus, not because of anything God has done to them, because God has not offended them. It is the fact that other Christians or people who call themselves Christians have offended them. So faith works. James is about a book of action. It's all about action. It is all about us living our life in obedience and action. It is all about us <laughs> taking what we know from our head and putting it out in action to the people around us. And so when you get to James chapter 1, uh, this really begins to light itself on fire to begin with. And he really addresses a couple things starting out in the first chapter in the first eight verses, what we're going to talk about tonight. He talks about facing trials and he talks about doubt. And we're going to spend a little time talking about doubt. We're going to spend some time talking about faith. We're going to spend some time talking about kind of some of this stuff so that you can get a proper understanding understanding of what that means and this is what I know what I know is there are many of you in this room that doubt maybe you doubt God you doubt whether he answers your prayers maybe you doubt whether he exists maybe you doubt in many different things maybe you doubt uh, whether you're going to graduate high school and that's not a good thing and uh, you doubt you know there's so many things that we doubt in now, the interesting thing about the book of James is, is that, is that let's, let's define a little bit, let's get a little background on the book of James. First off, the book of James was written by a guy named 
James. Now, we know that there's a disciple named James, and uh, the disciple James uh, actually is not the one who wrote the book of James. <laughs> in fact, the disciple James was killed in AD 42. He was the first of the 12 disciples to be murdered for his faith in Jesus. So it wasn't that James. It was actually James, the brother of Jesus. James, the brother of Jesus. In fact, we see this in Matthew chapter 13, 55 through 26. It says, uh, they're talking about Jesus. They say, isn't this the carpenter's son? We know that Joseph was a carpenter. And it says, isn't his mother named Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Jesus is, is one of his brothers was named James. And this goes against a, a typical Catholic belief that popped up in the 19th century that, that the Immaculate Conception of Mary, that Mary was a virgin all her entire life, that she never conceived any other children. And this verse flies in the face of that. Well, in fact, she did conceive other children. Jesus had four brothers and sisters after that, the Bible tells us. Now, here's the interesting thing about it. The Bible goes on to tell us that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. Jesus' brothers did not believe. I mean, can you imagine... Can you imagine if, if your brother came home and said, Hi, uh, I'm God, worship me. No, no, yeah, it's for real, man. You'd be like, bro, shut your mouth or I'm going to slap you. You know what I'm saying? If my brother came home and said that, I would be like, okay, yeah, whatever, bro. Hey, bow down right now. I'd be like, you know what I mean? And it would be all over. You know what I'm saying? Now my brother can kick my butt, so I'm just kidding. That wouldn't happen. But, uh, but the point of that is, is that, is that and, and this is how we know, this is one of the greatest evidences right here of the resurrection of Jesus. People talk, what about the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus? How do we know that Jesus raised from the dead? Well, there's a list of evidences we can go through. I'm not going to go through all of them tonight. But let me just give you one right now. The fact that James, the brother of Jesus, would not only worship Jesus as God, but that he would found the Jerusalem church. He would be one of the greatest leaders of the early church church and he would die for the fact that he believed that Jesus raised from the dead. In fact, the Jewish historian Josephus, who was not a Christian, who was writing from Rome, tells us that James, the just he was called, was taken up to the pinnacle of the temple. He was thrown off of the temple. He hit the ground. He, he crawled to his knees, still alive. And as he was crawling to his knees, he began to pray. And the people that were down at the bottom of the temple began to stone him to death. And a man runs by with a club and clubs him in the head, bashes his head in and kills James, the brother of Jesus. What would convince you to worship your brother as God? Nothing. What would convince you to die knowing that your brother wasn't God for a lie? Nothing. Yet James did it, and the reason he did it is because he believed with all of his heart that Jesus raised from the dead and that Jesus was who he said he was. There was a change that took place. Before he didn't believe, Jesus raises from the dead and now he believes. This is a historical fact. This isn't made up fairy tale. This isn't just something in the Bible. This is recorded in other documents and books during this day. This is in historical this is historically accurate. We know this to be true. So if anyone knew about the subject of doubt, it was James. If anyone knew what it meant to doubt something that someone else was claiming, it was James. 
And so James speaks on it a little bit here in James chapter 1. And I, I want to just kind of walk through it a little bit. And I want to I read it to you. So now we know this uh, James is Jesus' brother. I want you to check this out. Look what he says. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how he identifies himself. James, Jesus' brother, says he's a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's calling himself a servant of his brother. And to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. He says, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Listen, I'm just going to be honest with you guys, man. When I face trials, the last thing I want to do is be like, yay, give me another one. And he says, consider it pure joys when you face trials of many kinds. He's listen, he says, listen, the response to when you face difficult situations and trials in your life should be joy. And he doesn't just say that you're going to face trials of few. He says you're going to face trials of many kinds. This is a promise. In your life, you will face trials of many kinds. But listen, consider it joy. Why would I consider it joy? Well, look what he says. He says, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. He says, listen, I want you to be mature. I want you to be complete. I want you not to lack anything. And how you do that is this, that when you face trials, when you face things in your life that are difficult, you need to persevere through those because when your faith is tested, it is going to develop something in you that is unbelievable. Some of the people that are the most mature people I know spiritually have faced some of the most difficult trials in their life. And listen, this is what I know, man. There's some of you that are sitting where you're at right now. And you're going through some heavy stuff right now. You are facing trials right now. And let me tell you something. I think that James is encouraging the church because this is what I see when I look at the landscape, of especially teenagers. And it's young adults like me. Man, we're quitters. The first moment adversity comes, the first moment trial comes, we quit. We even, we even make our faith about this conditional relationship with God. God, I'll serve you. God, I'll follow you. God, I'll do what you want to do as long as everything in my life goes the way I want. And so we're going on in life and everything's going good. And then all of a sudden, I prayed that we would win the state championship football game. And our team, our team went 1-17 this year. God, why did you do that to me? I won the scholarship. We pray about someone getting healed because we know that, that there's something going on in their life and they're dealing with some situation and we're praying for that and it doesn't happen and it shipwrecks our faith. Guys, listen. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. For do you not know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance? And perseverance develops maturity and helps you to become complete so that you don't lack anything. Trials brings maturity. Trials brings growth in our life. Now look, I want you to notice what he says here. Then he goes on. And he says, and if you lack wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it will be given to them. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, unstable in all that he does. 
Notice what he says. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. He says, hey, listen, when you come to God and you pray, you need to come to God in faith, and you need to pray and not doubt. You need to pray and not doubt. Now listen, I want to make this clear because I want, I want you to have the correct view of this because I think a lot of times what we do is we put faith in faith and we don't put our faith in God. Let me explain what I mean by that. We put our faith in faith and what that means is, is, that, is that God, if I don't doubt, if I eradicate doubt, if I, if I just play this certain certainty and God, as long as I'm just focused on you and as long as I'm just saying the things I need to say and God, I'm just not, I'm not, I'm not even going to, God, I'm praying for this. It's going to happen. It is going to happen. I, I'm praying with certainty. God, I know it's going to happen. And so all of a sudden then when that doesn't happen in our life, we begin to go, well, God, I mean, I didn't doubt and you didn't answer this. So what the heck happened? See, I think this is what he's saying. What he's saying is this. He is saying, trust me. Trust God. When you pray and you ask, there is no need to doubt. Whether God answers your request with a yes, whether God answers your request with a no, whether God answers your request with, with a wait, God is going to answer your request and it is going to be for your good even if you don't understand it. See, a lot of times we think that we can manipulate God into answering things for us and doing things for us and when we do that, it, be, it shipwrecks our faith. I'll give you a perfect example. I've been a youth pastor about three years. There was a student who lived a couple doors down from me, and, and every time I would pass by, he was in ninth grade, I'd pass by his house, I'd see him out in the yard. <laughs> he wore all black. You know, people called him gothic or, or whatnot. He kind of kept to himself. He was quiet. His name was Adrian. So I stopped by his house one day. I said, hey, bro, you want to come to a youth group? We have church and a bunch of students and all this kind of stuff, man. It's a really cool thing. And he's like, nah, man, but thanks for the invite. And so I just kept asking him, kept asking him. Finally, one day, he said, yeah, I'll go with you. So he comes, and he checks it out. And, and I told some of the students, I'm like, listen, man, you need to reach out to this dude, man. You know, he's going through some stuff in his life. And, you know, I don't know why he's so distant. I don't know why he doesn't really talk to anybody. I don't know why he's so reclusive. You know, but, man, you just reach out to these guys. Just love on him. And so they begin to reach out to him. He lived with his grandmother. His parents didn't want anything to do with him, so they kicked him out of the house when he was a little kid. His grandmother adopted him. They began to love on him. And about two months later, Adrian accepted Christ. And, dude, we were pumped. We're like, yeah. I mean, we're, like, how, we, we, I mean, we're going ballistic. Two weeks later, I pick him up to bring him to youth group because I would stop by his house on the way. He gets in the car, and, and he was upset. And he says, Derek, uh, I just found out this week that I have cancer. 15 years old. He's like, man, I just don't understand, man. He's like, I've given my life to God, and two weeks later I find out for cancer. How can God do that to me? I mean, this was a crisis moment in his life. This was a massive trial, and the seeds of doubt begin to well up within him. And he came and we prayed over Adrian and we prayed for Adrian and, and we loved on Adrian and he went through chemo. And at the end of the year, after going through chemo for a year, the doctors told him, it's gone. We were pumped, man. He comes back to youth group. We're cheering. We're excited. We're high-fiving each other, chest bumping, butt slapping. I mean, it was awesome. And Just kidding. No butt slapping. I'll go to jail for that. And, uh, 
and, uh, and uh, so that happened. And, uh, and then, uh, and then so the, the next week he went back into the doctor. They went in to do surgery. They were going to remove some calcium deposits or some stuff that was on his lungs that, from the dead cells, from the chemo or whatever. When they went in, they found some live cells. They said, man, we're going to have to start you back on chemo. They closed him back up. Uh, two weeks later, he was short on breath, went to the doctor. They said, you got a week to live. I'm going to tell you guys. It rocked my faith. I'll never forget, it was a Sunday. I was sitting by his hospital bed. As he was taking his last breaths. I walked out of the room. I walked downstairs. I got my car to leave. And when I was in the parking deck, pulling out of the parking deck, he passed away. 15 years old, or 16 at that time. But we prayed. We prayed believing. We didn't doubt that God was going to heal him. Does that mean that God doesn't exist? No, we cannot manipulate God. We cannot manipulate God that if I pray something and I don't doubt it, then that means that God is going to do what I want to do. This is what we have to trust. We have to trust that God is good. And let me tell you something. I've been on the other side of it. I have prayed for situations. I have prayed for people who have cancer. I have prayed for those things. And we have prayed over people. And they have been healed. And God has done unbelievable, miraculous things. In fact, I could tell you a list of stories of some of the coolest things I've ever seen in my life in which God supernaturally intervened. And it is impossible for that situation to have happened without God's intervention in that situation. But in this situation, it didn't turn out that way. And even as... Adrian was taking his last breaths. His parents were still smiling. Hey, it's all good, man. God's going to pull him through. God's going to pull him through. As if this confidence that they had was enough to bring Adrian back. And it shipwrecked their faith. In fact, he says that it's like someone where the wind is blowing them back and forth on the open sea. It's, it's, it's kind of like this, this picture from from the perfect storm. I mean, that's what happens to our faith. When we begin to doubt God, when we begin to put things in our hands, right? It's like, it's like yeah, man. It's like, you know, yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. And then, then something happens and all of a sudden, boom, we crash. And, and so we pray things and, and we do all this kind of stuff. And, and we try to put God in this little box. And we try to make God do the things that we want God to do. And listen, well, this is what I'm telling you this pastor is saying. What this pastor is telling us is, is that we have to trust God. We have to trust God that he is greater and bigger and unbelievable. That there's nothing that is outside of his hand. There is nothing that is, that is too big for him or too small for him. And he he knows better than we do. He knows better than we do. There's some of you that may be praying that you and your boyfriend won't break up, and you will break up. And it's because God knows that he's got somebody better for you down the road. And you don't understand why you're going through the heartbreak of that breakup because you thought this guy was the guy. And God says, you will understand one day. You don't understand now, but you will understand one day. 
See, we fall into this belief that faith, faith fixes everything. Let me tell you something. Faith doesn't fix everything. In fact, I can have all the faith in the world that I'm going to play in the NBA. But I'm here to tell you, I am less, a little less than six foot tall, just under, but I lie and say it on my license that I'm six foot tall. And I got like a four-inch vertical. I can't touch the bottom of the net. I'm never going to play in the NBA. And so we buy into these lies of culture and we say, hey man, if you put your mind to it, you can do it. Let me tell you something. If you were five, six, you are not going to play in the NBA, bro. I don't care. Put your mind to it. Your parents can tell you, practice all day, do all you want to. And then people say, oh, well, there was Muggsy Bogues. Muggsy Bogues played in the NBA. Okay, one guy, bro. You're banking your hope off of one guy. We have to be careful not to, not to build this thing that is false faith. Now, what I am telling you is, is that that's putting faith in faith, putting faith in my faith. But, but, but I am saying put your faith in God. Anchor your faith in God. See, when we trust God and we anchor our faith in God and when we, we put it all in Him, then we trust Him. And so no matter how the circumstance or situation works out, we still trust Him. See, here's the interesting thing about it. In Hebrews chapter 11, we see the list of the great faith men and women of God. It is the faith hall of fame. And he goes through talking about Abraham and Moses and Enoch and all these guys all through this, this massive faith chapter and all the great things they accomplished because of their faith and what God did through them. And here's the interesting thing it tells us in verse 39 of, of that chapter it says and it, it says this it says they were all commended for their faith yet none of them received what had been promised none of them received what had been promised now he's talking about the promised messiah he's talking about seeing the future glory of god he's talking about all that kind of stuff but none of them in their lifetime received what was promised yet they stayed steadfast in their faith it wasn't about receiving this promise. It was about being faithful to God. It was about being obedient to God. And the reality also is that God answers prayers at times even when we doubt. God doesn't, doesn't look at us and say, you know what, I'm not going to answer your prayer because you're doubting right now. In fact, a perfect example of that is in Acts chapter 12. There's a group of people and they're praying for Peter. Peter's in prison and they're praying that, that Peter would be released from prison. And, and God says an angel and he opens up the doors of prison and Peter walks out of prison. He's like, dang man, this is pretty cool. And, and so Peter walks down the street and he goes up to the house where the people are praying. And he knocks on the door of the house and he's waiting there by the door. And the lady walks up she looks through the peephole and she goes, <clears throat> closes the door back. Goes there, Peter's at the door. And all the people that are in there praying goes, yeah, right, whatever, you're crazy. And they keep praying. So Peter's over the door and so Peter's like, knocks again. He keeps knocking over at the door, and they don't believe that Peter's at the door. Finally, they go over and they answer the door, and sure enough, it's Peter. These people are in there praying that Peter will be released from prison, and then yet, when they find out that he really has, they are doubting that it even happened. The Bible tells us that after Jesus raised from the dead, he's talking to the disciples, and literally, this is what the scripture says in Matthew chapter 28, they are standing there worshiping him, and then it says, and some doubted. Well, this was the 11 disciples that were left, because Judas, you know, he'd done that thing with his neck, and didn't work out too well for him, and, and there's the other 11 disciples, and they're hanging out with Jesus, and it said that, that they, they're worshiping him, but some doubted. Listen, Jesus has raised from the dead, he is standing in front of them, and they are still doubting. Still doubting. Let me tell you something. Some of you say, man, if God just showed up in this room right now, said, hey, I'm God, worship me, I would believe. No, you wouldn't. 
Jesus raised from the dead and is standing there in front of them with the holes in his hands and his feet, and they still doubted. In Luke chapter 16, there's, there's this rich man and this, and this guy Lazarus, and, and, and it's kind of this interesting story because it talks about Lazarus going up to paradise, and he's up there with Abraham, and, and you, see, you see the rich man who goes to hell. In fact, somebody mentioned this in their testimony, and the interesting thing about it is, is that the, the, the rich man looks up to Lazarus, and, and, and he says, or looks up to Abraham, and he says, listen, is there any way that you could give me some, some water just to put on my tongue because it is so, it is so painful down here. It is, it is terrible. I'm so parched, and, and he says, no, nah, man, I can't really do anything for you. He says, well, well, Abraham, if you can't do anything for me, can you go back? Can you send someone back from the dead to go back and tell all of my friends so that my friends will believe? And Abraham says back to him, well, do they not have Moses and the prophets? Do they not have the word of God? Do they not already have the truth? To which he responds, yes, they have that. But if you send someone back from the dead, they will believe. To which he responds back, Abraham responds back to the rich man and says, if they will not believe the word of God, they will not believe if anyone comes back from the dead. See, here's the reality. The reality of it is, is that we have a choice to believe or not believe. And for most of us, for most of us, like myself, before I became a Christian at 17 years old, I was the God of my life, and it didn't matter what anybody told me, it didn't matter what anybody said, it didn't matter what anybody did, I was not going to believe in God because I didn't want anything to do with God. I wanted everything to do with me. And if God popped up beside me, I would have found some excuse to say that it wasn't real. And I think it's important for us to get this. And I want to show you guys something. In the Bible, there are three words that we see and that we use all the time when we talk about God. And our, we use these words, faith, belief, and trust. We use these words when we talk about some of us say, I have faith in God, I believe in God, I, I trust in God. And we use these words synonymously with one another, but in reality, in the English definition of these words, they are all different. Let me show you what I mean. Faith is sort of feelings-driven. Faith is feelings-driven. So what that means is this, is that, 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 we, that this is where we say, you know, I believe with that absolute certainty. I'm not going to doubt. I have faith. It's kind of like the fall test. You know what I'm saying? Where you, somebody gets something, they're like, hey, fall backwards, and I'll catch you. And you fall backwards, and, you know, and, it's, and it's all about feelings. And so we, we mask our emotions, and we deal our emotions. This deals with, with all of our feelings and all that kind of stuff. So listen, what happens is, is that for many of us, we say we have faith in God, and it's all about feelings. So we come in here, and we experience the service, and we're like, oh, man, I feel God's presence. God, I feel it. But then what happens is, is that sometimes in our life we're praying and sometimes we're worshiping and we don't feel God. And we're like, God, are you distant from me? God, why don't I feel you? God, why don't I feel you anymore? God, are you even there? Derek, I don't even know if I believe in God anymore because I don't feel him anymore. And it's because all we're doing is leaning on our feelings. Yeah, it can be a feeling. And man, I experience God and I feel it, but sometimes I don't. It's not about a feeling. Belief. Intellect. Belief deals with the intellect. Belief deals with the intellect. So you'll have people say things like, I believe in Bigfoot. Y'all seen that Finding Bigfoot show? <laughs> I believe in UFOs. 
I believe in creation. I believe in evolution. I believe in this. I believe in that. And people start talking about this belief thing. And what we're saying is, is that we, we have belief in something if we believe that it might plausibly be true. And so intellectually, we come to a conclusion and we say, this is what I believe based on if, if it's plausibly true or whether I believe it or not. But typically, this doesn't have to change your life. If you believe in Bigfoot, that doesn't really change your life. You're not like walking through the woods going, man, where's Bigfoot? I hope he doesn't jump out and grab me and throw me in the back of a, I guess he don't have a car, but whatever he would throw you in the back of. You know what I'm saying? Like, it doesn't really change your life. It doesn't really affect the way you live, but it's all intellectual. And we have to be careful about this because in church sometimes we'll say, hey, man, you need to just believe in Jesus. You need to just put your belief in Jesus. And so many people are walking around in churches, and they say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. We're in the Bible Belt. Who doesn't? I believe that there's a Jesus, and I have belief and belief, 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 belief. And listen, you believe facts about God, but you you don't have an experience. You have never surrendered your life to him. Is completely intellectual for you. You say, I believe in God. It doesn't, it doesn't change your life. It doesn't affect your life. It's, it's completely intellectual. Then trust. Trust is response. Trust is active. Trust is action. <laughs> and so if your mom tells you, honey, I trust you, but mom doesn't let you do anything, then mom doesn't trust you. You can tell by mom's response whether she trusts you or not. It is not about what she says. It's how she acts. It is her response. If mom tells you she trusts you and she's got you an 8 o'clock curfew and she's got a tracking device on your car and she's got like a web uplink camera on you following you all the time from a satellite dish somewhere, somewhere. You know what I'm saying? She doesn't trust you. This is response. And this is what I found, man. What I found is, is that typically in churches, typically in us, we lean one of these ways. And for some of us, we lean all the way one of these ways. I just have to know intellectually. I just have to feel it and experience it. I just have to have a response. So you have people in churches, the man, they serve, they're involved in everything. Man, they're, they're here early, they're helping tear down stuff, they're helping clean up stuff. Man, they're down at the homeless shelter. I mean, they have all this response stuff, but they have no experience with God, and they have no intellectual understanding of who God is. Now, here's the interesting thing about it. Though we have three different words in the English, in the Greek language, which the New Testament was written, there is only one word in Greek that describes all three of these words. The same Greek word is the same word that defines these three words when it is translated in your New Testament. In other words, what that means is, is that literally, when we talk about faith, when we talk about belief, when we talk about trust, when it comes to the Bible, it is saying that if you are a follower of Jesus, not only is it something that you experience through feelings, not only is it something that you experience through your intellect, but it is also something that you respond to. It is something that changes your life. It is something that leads you to action. And so a follower of Jesus has has all of these in play when they're talking about I have faith. It is literally a full surrender of your life to Jesus when you say that you have trust and faith in him. I think maybe that's the reason when Jesus was asked what is the greatest commandment? Jesus says, love the Lord your God 
with all of your heart, the center of your emotions and feelings, with all of your mind, your intellect, and all of your soul and strength, the way you respond. In other words, there is no concept in all of the Bible of worshiping, serving, having faith in God apart from it entailing all of these. Apart from it entailing a full surrender of your intellect, your heart, and your response. Man, this is so critical you get this. I don't know if you heard some of the testimonies that were mentioned earlier of students saying, yeah, I grew up in church. Yeah, I heard this. I heard that. It was, it was all head knowledge, but it never translated to my heart. It was all up here, but it never translated there. I hear that all the time. And if you don't understand this, this will breed doubt in your life. People who live here in this world, every time they hear something that they don't understand, that goes against their intellectual understanding, then they begin to doubt God. People who are here, when they're not feeling things the way they feel like they should th feel things, they start doubting God. People down here, when they have trust issues in their life, maybe someone that they trusted that, that, that was supposed to respond a certain way and they didn't get that modeled right in their life, like a father or a mother or someone like that, they begin to doubt God. I think there are several things that breed doubt. I'm going to wrap this thing up because we're, getting, we're getting, getting on it. There are several things that breed doubt. Before I go there, let me say this. I talk to a lot of people who talk about doubting their salvation. Man, I, man, I, you know, man, I gave my life to Christ like a year ago, but dude, I think I need to do it again, and da-da-da-da-da, blah, 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 and they go through all this kind of stuff. Let me tell you something. If you fully surrendered your life to Christ, you are a child of God. And maybe for you, all you need to do is repent. All you need to do is turn to God. The reason you're feeling bad about your sin is because God is beginning to work in you. God is showing you that what you're doing isn't of him and that you need to surrender that to him. But additionally to that, some of you need to doubt. Because you've been attending church maybe most of your life. You've been going here, you've been going here, you've been doing this, you've been doing that. And you think that you're a Christian, but you have never fully surrendered your life to Christ. You come, you raise your hands, and you experience him feeling, maybe you experience him mentally, and you say, yeah, I believe there's a God. Or, but it is never translated to anything of substance in your life. And you need to surrender your life to Jesus. I think there's a few things that breed doubt, and then we're going to close out. The first thing I think that breeds doubt is misinformation. What I'm going to call misinformation. Misinformation breeds doubt. So what happens is, is that you hear something that is untrue information, but it goes against what you believe, and because you don't understand it, or because someone said it to you that is more intellectual than you are, or more intellectual than you think you are, then you say, well, that guy must be right, so I must believe what he says. And what you need to know is just because you don't know the answer to a question does not mean that there is not an answer to that question. I know a lot of people who go around bringing up 
different topics to ill-equipped Christians about their faith, about all this kind of stuff, and they never get the answers they could, that they want. They never get the answers from those Christians because they don't know what they believe or why they believe what they believe. My guess is there's some people in this room and you have a lot of questions about God and you've never got those questions answered. But just because you don't know those answers does not mean that there's not answers. And so when you hear misinformation, you begin to buy into a lie because you don't know how to respond to that situation, which doesn't mean that there's no one that knows how to respond to that situation. And you begin to take this slippery slope in the wrong direction because you bought into misinformation. Because you think something is plausibly true. Because you are buying, you are believing with intellect. And so people will say things like, well, intellectual people just don't believe in God. You people are just crazy. Intellectual people don't believe in God. Oh, really? Several months ago, I popped up on the screen all the intellectuals, uh, some of the most intellectual scientists of all time and mathematicians of all time believed in God. There's a treatise written by Albert Einstein talking about his belief that there's a God. There's Albert, uh, Isaac, Sir Isaac Newton, who's considered the greatest scientist that ever lived, was a devout follower of God. Johannes Kepler, who was one of the greatest uh, in his field of all time, believed in God. Uh, Galileo believed in God. I mean, go on and on and on. Alistair McGrath did a study of scientists at the graduate level at all colleges all over the world and came to the, and came to the conclusion through his survey that over 50% of scientists in the science fields at the graduate level of the college level believe that there is a God. Hold on a second. My science teacher tells me that if I believe in science, then I can't believe in God because science goes into the face of God. Oh, does it really? See, I don't think so. Maybe it's because you're hearing misinformation and you don't know the other side of the coin and you've never sought out to search out that information to really know what information is true and what information is not true. And so our faith gets shipwrecked just like that clip of the perfect storm because we hear misinformation and it begins to breed doubt about our faith. So I would challenge you, if you've got questions, to ask them to people who can help you answer them. Secondly, I think what breeds doubt is, and, and, and kind, of dip, kind of coming off of that is our limited knowledge. We don't know everything. Now, I know your parents probably tell you, you think you know everything. My mom used to say that every day. She still says that, and I do know it. No, I'm just kidding. And, uh, <laughs> but we're limited in our knowledge. God is omniscient. Again, just because we don't know it doesn't mean that the answer is not there. Another thing that breeds doubt is things don't go your way or God doesn't answer a prayer of yours. Right? Like, we're like, man, God, I'm praying for this thing. God, I expect you to do this thing. God, why is this stuff happening? And so we begin to pray this. And I mentioned it earlier, kind of like the story of, of, the, of the guy, uh, uh, Lazarus and the rich man, or, or the disciples who were standing right there before Jesus, and, and he's raised from the dead. And they're standing, and Jesus is like, bro, you can put your fingers in my hands. You can touch the hole in my side from where they speared me. I mean, bro, like, what are you talking about? You're doubting that I'm standing in front of you right now. And so our prayers don't get answered, or 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 things don't go our way, and so we begin to abandon our faith. I think that breeds doubt. And then finally, I think that death or pain, loss. If there is a God, then why would he let this happen to me? I think that goes back to the beginning. That when you face trials of many kinds, consider it pure joy. For do you not know? Do you not know? The testing of your faith produces perseverance. And perseverance will finish its work in us and make us mature and complete, not lacking anything. 
So here's the challenge for you tonight. The challenge for you tonight is to know that when you face trials and difficulty and stuff like that in your life, God is in control. Use that as an opportunity to build maturity and to become complete in Him. Don't quit. Press in. The second thing I would say is this. I said, don't doubt. Don't doubt God. Don't try to manipulate God by, by praying in such a way that you feel like you're never like just even considering another option. What I'm saying is don't doubt that God is going to do the right thing no matter what happens in your situation. And you pray for that situation believing that God's going to come through, but knowing that if God decides not to, that it is for your good and for your benefit. Because the scripture tells us, do you not know that for all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose? And the third thing is this. There's some of you in this room, and you need to give your life to Christ. You, you've, you've heard the stories earlier. You've seen the life change in other people. Maybe you've dabbled in some of these things. But you have never fully put your full trust and faith, full surrender into who he is. You have never said, God, I am a sinner. I realize that I'm separated from you. And God, I need you more than anything in the world. And let me tell you something. The Bible is clear in Romans chapter 3 that there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who seeks God. There's no one who understands. Their mouths are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. Ruin and misery what mark their way. I mean, he goes on and on and on. He is saying that is the condition of every man. There is not a person in this room that is born seeking after God, saying, oh God, I want to worship you. The Bible tells us that we are all in rebellion of him. And the Bible tells us that God did not leave us this, that way. But that God demonstrated his love, and while we were yet sinners, while we were running away from him, that God demonstrated his love in this, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him, whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. See, here's the reality. You need to stop living for yourself and you need to start living for God. And it ain't just about a change of behavior. It is about putting your life in God's hand and letting him change you from the inside out. Because you can't change on your own. You need the power of God working in you. So the band's gonna come up. And they're going to close us out in a song tonight. And as they come up to close us out in the song, I, I just want to say this. Everybody look right here. If you're here tonight, and this is you, and you say, I need to give my life to Christ. I'm tired of playing games. I'm tired of living for myself. Derek, I can totally relate. Man, I'm all into this feelings thing, but man, I've never really fully surrendered my life to Christ. Yeah, Derek, I can totally relate. Man, I, I've always said, yeah, I believe in God, but it's never really affected who I am or the way I live. Yeah, Derek, I know what you're saying, man. Like, I like to serve. I like to do all this kind of stuff. I like to be around, but, but Derek, man, I've never really just fully just given it all to God. Man, if you're here tonight and, and you say, Derek, I want to surrender my life to Jesus, I want to tell you, we want to walk you through that. And I want to challenge you if you're in here tonight to surrender your life to Jesus if you've never done it before. And if you have, listen, worship God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, and with all your strength. Give him your everything. Don't doubt him. Don't doubt him.